So this morning we are diving back into the book of Revelation. We're starting the fourth of eight sections contained in this book. The section is called The Seven Visions. Uh, these are visions that John gets while he's in heaven, and I'll explain a little bit of some of them this morning. But I do want to just always just set the scene for us by reminding you that there are many ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Those that have been a part of the series for some time will know this, but perhaps you're new here today and you've always read Revelations in a certain way. I want you to know that there are various ways you can interpret this book. How we've chosen to interpret this book in the series is that instead of speaking of different events that happen, you know, sort of outside of each other, this event in the book of Revelation is speaking about one thing. It's God's plans and purposes for the world coming to motion. And we see this plan on differing or varying aspects of a spiral. I'm saying that now because when I get to interpreting it, it's important that you understand that. Again, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. We can still be friends and we can still walk together, but you will get to hear a different perspective this morning. But let's recap really quickly what we've covered so far in this series. It all started with seven letters written to seven churches. Who remembers the seven churches? Maybe not by name, but okay, well, there's a few of you that remember it. It's amazing. It's clearly, um, clearly we're listening. It's good. Seven churches scattered in and around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Jesus writes these letters to them. These letters are specific to actual churches. These are real churches. They existed in history. They're there. But even though it was to seven specific churches, this book of Revelation is written to the church, the collective church, us today. It transcends time, it transcends space, and so whatever he had to say to them then is applicable to us today. For example, those churches taught us how important it is for, to live in a, in a pagan world, a world that's dead set on the gospel. You might think, but Marco, this world's not really that pagan anymore. I want to tell you, I think we're probably more pagan now than they were then. We just don't show it. Our pagan idols have changed their form and their shape, but this world is very pagan. What those churches also taught us was how do we live amidst persecution, amidst opposition. And they also taught us one other great lesson, which was how not to compromise. And compromise comes in various shapes and various forms. We saw that in the church of Ephesus, right? Remember Ephesus, the great church, the most amazing church, the mega church of the day, building and planting churches and seeing the gospel sown throughout Paul's life. But then all of a sudden in Revelation, Jesus has this to say to them, but I have this against you, you've lost your first love. You see, we often think of compromise as being compromised with sin, but let me tell you, the church of Ephesus entered into a compromising relationship with self-righteousness. And that's a danger for us as believers. We can stay away from sin, but we can become so self-righteous, so prideful, so arrogant. The other type of compromise we see in the seven churches was Thyatira, a church who believed they could operate both with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. We need to avoid all of those things at all costs. There was a promise, though, to those churches, and that promise was this, to every church, whether they messed up or whether they were doing great, to those who overcome, there is a reward. God is saying that to us this morning. Jesus wants us to know that if we overcome these things, opposition, persecution, and compromise, there is a reward waiting for us in heaven. We then unpack the seven seals, this scroll that was in God's right hand that was closed and shut. And initially, John is a bit disturbed because nobody can open it, but there was found one to be worthy, and his name is Jesus. And he starts to open the scroll. Every seal represents a different judgment, speaking of God's plans coming to fruition. And the good news for us is that God's plans are underway. You might look at the world around you and think it's all messed up. You might think, well, what hope do we have? We have an eternal hope. His name is Jesus, and he's the one who's in charge. We then looked in our last section at the seven trumpets. John is still in heaven at that point, and he's got this next vision, a trumpet warning from God. And what is God doing? He's warning the world that up until this point has rejected him for the most part, that there is still 
time right now to repent. And how does he warn the world through these judgments or through these trumpets? He warns them through judgments. The first four judgments are those natural judgments of God, the judgments against the land, the sea, the rivers, and the heavens. And then in trumpets five and six, we expose to something of supernatural sort of danger. In fact, the, the text calls these not trumpets, but woes. Why? Because they're more severe. And it speaks about the demonic forces being released on this earth to blind us, torment us, and hold us back. And for the church specifically, that there is an army amassing at our northern border ready to devour God's people. And then in between trumpets six and seven, there's this period of time, there's a break. And we're exposed to four particular events. You'll remember these, the seven thunders, which spoke of the mysteries of God. There's some things that we just don't know because God's bigger than us, and that's okay. We then looked at the little scroll, and it reminded us of the bittersweet nature of the gospel. How often we receive the gospel with gladness because we're saved, redeemed, set free, taken out of our previous life, and born again. But walking out this gospel requires something of us. It requires sanctification, which is not easy for any one of us. It requires that our hearts move closer to Jesus. And in doing that, we will reject the world. And believe me, when you reject the world, the world will reject you too. And so it's bitter at times. And then we looked at two events, the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses, both of which I said, according to the way I interpret Revelation, represented the majesty of God's church in the last days. And if you want to ask me, what are the last days? I believe it's from when Jesus came to this earth, was ascended into heaven until he comes back. We are living in what I believe is the gospel age, and we have a powerful witness in this season. And that brings us to today's section, the seven visions, which not only mark the beginning of this section 4 of 8 in Revelations, but also chapter 12 of Revelation marks the beginning of the second half of the book of Revelation. Revelation can be cleanly divided into two separate halves, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 22. Both of which speak of the same or similar events, I believe. But what we'll find in this next section is we're going to be introduced to more characters. We're going to be introduced to a character called the dragon. We're going to be introduced to a character called the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. We'll be introduced to Babylon, the harlot. We'll be introduced to those that carry the mark of the beast. In the first 11 chapters, we found those who carried the seal of God, 777. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All of us collectively, the children of God. But what we'll notice as we progress through the rest of all of these sections in Revelation is that the second half of the book is dedicated in some sense to showing us how God is going to deal with all of these anti-Christian forces. It's going to give us a bit more understanding to some of the things we've read. It's going to show us some more detail. In chapters 15 and 16, we'll see, we'll see what happens to those that carry the mark of the beast. In chapters 17 to 19, we'll see what happens to Babylon the harlot, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the land. And finally, at the end of Revelation, in chapters 20 to 22, we'll see what happens ultimately to the dragon himself. But the major theme throughout chapters 1 through 11, if you haven't been paying attention, is this. Is that Jesus is mighty. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And Jesus came to conquer. The second half is going to confirm all of that too. Why? Because Jesus is still victorious. Jesus is still mighty. Jesus has still come to conquer. And so as we read this book and we allow our hearts to you know, get disturbed by some of the things that we know will come or perhaps have happened to us, what we have to understand is in this book we are more than conquerors because Christ in us is the hope of glory. The second half is also going to tell us one important thing. And this is the fact 
that everything we've seen up until this point in the book of Revelation and everything we will see in the rest of Revelation reminds us that for far longer than any one of us in this room have been alive, there has been a cosmic battle waging between Satan and Jesus. But it does come to an end. And that brings us to this morning. And the reality of whether we like to admit it or not, that we as God's church are in the center of Satan's crosshairs. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 11, verse 19. We're going to read all the way to 12, verse 6 this morning. I do want to say one thing at this point. Uh, so let me tell you, I'm a, quite a fastidious preparer. And so Catherine will tell you, and on Friday, I spent most of my day preparing this message. And then on Saturday, I woke up and the Lord told me to rewrite the message. And so I rewrote the message on Saturday morning. And I was excited because I felt, wow, man, God, you've spoken. And then all of a sudden, I lost all my work. Okay? I know. It's terrible. You're like, how's this the 21st, 20, what are we, 22nd century now? 21st century. I don't even know what century we're in anymore. <laughs> but it was like, how can you lose your work? I don't know how I did it, but I did do it. And so I had to rewrite it. And I'm just saying this to you this morning because in a very small sense, I got to experience yesterday and so did my hand when I smashed the table what it means to be in Satan's crosshairs. Now, I'm not saying that the enemy came and he was going to defeat me there and then, but friends, let me tell you this. The reality of Satan persecuting us as his church is real. It happens to us all the time. It happens in the weirdest of ways. But he's out there, friends, and the one thing he wants to destroy is God's church. Why? Because if we are immobile, the kingdom of God will not advance the way God intended it to. And so he brings in all of this stuff. He brings division, anxiety. He brings in disagreements. He brings in all sorts of stuff that we argue about all the time. But I want you to know this morning, friends, that God's plan is for the church. And when we invite him into the church and we make the church about him, we can conquer the enemy. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunity to preach from your word. I never take this lightly, Lord. And I just thank you, Father, this morning that you would empower me with your spirit I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be high and lifted up. And if there's anything that anyone remembers, it's what Jeremy prayed this morning, will be that your word has taken root in our hearts and that it starts to produce great fruit in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So verse 19 of Revelation chapter 11 starts with the statement, Then. That's how we know this is actually part of the next section because the vision has changed. John has, is seeing something different now to what he has been seeing. In fact, a lot of commentators believe that Revelation 11 verse 19 actually belongs in chapter 12. I'm not going to argue that point this morning, but it does make sense that it is part of the next section. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. This is an important statement. Up until this point, we thought God's temple was open, right? We saw Jesus and God the Father ruling and reigning on their throne, but there is a sense now that John is being brought into a deeper vision. And the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hell. We'll get to the hell and the thunder and the earthquake shortly. But let me tell you this up front. What is clear in this section is God is wanting to invite us into a deeper understanding of who he is. He is inviting John to see things that no human eye up until this point has ever laid eyes on. In Old Testament language, the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested was called the Holy of Holies. Now that was the earthly tabernacle. This is the heavenly tabernacle. And God is allowing John into that place, into the very center of the universe, into the very center of God's existence. Ron was saying something to me a bit earlier, and it just struck me. You know, in the Psalms, it tells us that God is 
surrounded by these dark clouds. And it's not that he's bad or evil. I think sometimes God surrounds himself with clouds because if we had to truly see who he was, we would probably drop, drop dead or explode or maybe both at the same time. And it's not in a bad way, but imagine seeing the majesty of God. This is what John is seeing. And I believe it's indicating something important. He's telling us that something that has been veiled before is now being revealed. And so there is a sense that as we go through this section of Revelation, the last half of it, we're going to start to see things from a new perspective. God is revealing his plans and his purposes for us. And we should take courage in that because God wants to reveal everything to us. We are not in the dark, friends. Jesus in John 15 verse 15 puts it this way. He says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I have made known to you because we are God's friends. We get to participate with this plan with him. And so instead of seeing this book as doom and gloom and oh no, this is going to happen. We look at it and say, Lord, thank you for giving me strategy. Thank you for giving me insight. Thank you for giving me revelation on how I need to fight this war. And the only reason we get to go into this place, the secret place of God, is because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. There is no religion that's going to get you there. There is no righteous deed that is going to get you into the presence of God. It is the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And if you are here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, coming to church is not going to get you into the Holy of Holies. The only thing that will is accepting the fact that Jesus paid the price for your sins. Not what you did, not how good you are or how good you've been, but that Jesus, through his grace, has given us a gift. It's called righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with that concept. I wake up in the morning, I look myself in the mirror, and I don't see myself as being righteous. In fact, I think the problem is when we do start seeing ourselves as righteous. So maybe that's a good thing. But Jesus has imputed his righteousness on us, and God sees us through his blood. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout all of Scripture, the Ark of the Covenant has represented many things, but I want to speak about a couple of them this morning. Exodus 25 verse 22 speaks of the Ark in this way. God says to the nation of Israel, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Above the mercy seat. There's a picture of an ark here somewhere. There it is. I mean, I don't know if that's what the ark looked like, to be honest. I've never seen it. But that's supposedly what it looked like. And that sort of space above the wings there is the mercy seat. We as God's people get to encounter God at his mercy seat. Now, maybe you've heard me say this before, but let me remind us. There's a difference between grace and mercy. Grace is us receiving something that we've done nothing to earn. It's a gift. It's given to us. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. But mercy is us not receiving what we do deserve. You see, all of us deserve punishment. All of us deserve to be held accountable for our sins. All of us should be facing the wrath of God. But because God is seated in his mercy seat, he pours out mercy on his people. And in that, he's revealing his plans. And in that... We can take courage. You see, we have an eternal hope. The fact that we are invited into God's presence means that we live for eternity and not for now. It means that everything we look at and everything we frame our, our lives around should not be based on what we see in the temporal, but what we see in the eternal. It means that when we go out there to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to people, we are not scared of the persecution we face. We're looking forward to the inheritance we'll achieve. But there is a challenge. You see, this whole 
end of this text mentions a couple things about God. Remember when God appeared on Mount Sinai, he appeared with rumbling thunder and peals of lightning. It was the majesty, the power, the awesomeness of God. But throughout the Old Testament, that picture of God has always meant judgment. And so for those of us that are part of the community of God, God's people, we receive the mercy seat. But for those that aren't, they will face the judgment seat of Christ. There's only two options in this world. There's no gray area. There is no alternative. There's no secret path into heaven. You're either with God or you're against him. You either face the mercy seat of Christ or you will face his judgment seat. Those are the only two options out there. The second point for us this morning, I missed the first one, but it's fine. God wants us to take courage knowing that his plan of redemption has been in motion since the beginning. If you know that your family member, maybe your parents when you're a young child, has spent time researching and planning and preparing for a trip. You take comfort knowing that this is going to be an awesome trip. But if I quickly go and wake up Dino and drag him out of bed and say, hey boy, I've just decided we're going to go on this amazing trip. He's going to be like, dad, what do you mean? How are we going to do it? Where are we going? Where's the fuel? We don't even have a car. God reveals his plans to us because he wants us to be comfortable in knowing that he's been doing this for a lot longer than we have. Sometimes we put ourselves in the center of God's plans. We think, oh Lord, what are you going to do next? Believe me, he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's done and he knows what he's going to do. And we need to be strong in that. And a great sign in Revelation 12 verse 1, which is another word for vision. These are, this is why the section is called the seven visions. Appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. We encounter this beautiful, amazing, spectacular woman who's pregnant. In fact, she's described in words that up until this point have only been used to describe Jesus Christ himself. The question for us to ask is, who is this woman? What does she mean? To answer that, I want us to go to a particular poet, a particular poem book, a book of poetry in the Bible called Song of Solomon. You know, you, you've all read that one. It's the dangerous one. Chapter 6 verse 10 says this, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Friends, the answer to who this woman represents is this woman represents the faithful community of God. Song of Solomon has long been agreed that it is a picture of Jesus and his church, a picture of God and his church. And yes, it speaks about a man and woman and their love relationship, but it's this relationship that we get to enter into with God. The woman represents us as God's people, but not just us. It represents the people of God that existed a long time ago. It, exists, it represents the people who were pregnant, waiting for the promised Messiah to come. And those of us who live today carry that promise in us too. Except Jesus has come and Christ is in us. Isaiah describes this woman this way. He says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The woman shines with the radiance of Christ because it has always been God's plan that God's people would represent and reflect not the sun in our sky, but the sun in heaven. Just like the moon orbits our planet and we see the light offered, it's not because it's generating light, it's because it's reflecting light from the sun. All of us in this room have been called to be lights to this world. When we walk out of these four room, four walls, five walls, this is a weird shape. 
We get to go out there and our job is to be light bearers to the world. And it's not our light. It's not our goodness. It's not our righteousness. It is the reflection of the majesty, the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we get to go out into the world with. And so let me ask us the question. Is that who we reflect every day of our lives? Or are we reflecting something else? There is no judgment here. I find myself often reflecting things I should not be reflecting. Our job is to come back, look back at Jesus' face and say, Lord, use me to reflect you to everyone I encounter. The third point for us this morning is God wants us to take courage in that we know our enemy pretty well. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. This dragon, believe it or not, has been introduced to us before in the book of Revelation, except the last time he was called the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. This beast is none other than Satan. The dragon is none other than Satan. But I want us to spend a little bit of time unpacking this symbolism a little bit. Firstly, throughout the Old Testament, without exception, the term dragon or a dragon has always been used to describe nations under the influence of Satan that are against God's people. For example, Psalm 74 verse 13, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. That word for sea monsters in the Hebrew is the word tandanim, which is translated dragon. The context of this particular psalm is about God delivering the nation of Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh's hands at the Red Sea. It's about God redeeming his people, not just from Egypt, but also from Satan himself. In fact, what's interesting is that Egypt, for whatever reason, perhaps because of its initial persecution against God's people, has often been called in the Old Testament, the dragon. In Ezekiel 29 verse 2, we see this clearly. It says, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own, and I made it for myself. Notice, Pharaoh resembles everything that Satan has come to embody, a prideful, arrogant human being. The reason I keep going back to these Old Testament scriptures is we use scripture to interpret scripture. We don't make it up in our minds and we don't try and figure it out. We use scripture to tell us what we're reading. And while I'm not saying this morning that the nation of Egypt is our enemy today, what I am saying to you is that we are facing the great red dragon and all the kingdoms of this world that are under his influence. Make no mistake, friends, there are kingdoms in this world, and you can only be in one of two kingdoms. There is no gray area in this either. There is no mediocre kingdom, middle ground kingdom, good kingdom, sort of good kingdom, maybe good kingdom. There is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of our Lord and God and the kingdom of Satan himself. Those are the only two options we have. And if you're not in the kingdom of God, you are by virtue of that out of it, which means which kingdom are you in? But the good news is, one day this serpent, this dragon, this beast, will be defeated. Isaiah 27 verse 1, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. 
Satan has an end date, an expiry date, and it's coming. The second thing that we see described in this text is that the dragon is described as having seven heads, ten horns and crowns on those heads. And it's interesting because this beast is almost exactly the same as the beast that's mentioned to us in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7 verse 7, it explains the beast this way. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that before it in that it had ten horns. A lot of people throughout the years have done a really great job of trying to identify exactly who the heads, the horns and the crowns in these revelations represent. Both in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. But what's more important I believe for us this morning is to understand the broader meaning of what they represent. The seven heads with the number seven always in the book of Revelation representing completeness, I believe, emphasizes the completeness of the dragon's oppressive power. Man, he is oppressing this world right now and it is under his control. And whether people want to admit it or not who are in the world, they are oppressed by him. Sometimes we get oppressed even as believers. The ten horns represents the kingdoms of this world. And while we can try to pinpoint the actual kingdoms, believe me, when the first century church read John's writings, they probably thought he's speaking about Rome. And he's speaking about the kingdoms to come, whatever other aspects it is. And many people have different interpretations. What is clear is the fact that the kingdoms of this world are under the influence of the enemy, not under the influence of God. You see, man, humanity, flesh is not our enemy, friends. We love to fight against each other, but we have to understand there is a far greater spiritual war at play. And it is ruled by cosmic powers. And yes, while people might be the ones who execute mean things against us, the enemy, friends, is the dragon. We need to start taking our eyes off each other and fighting the war in the spiritual realm. Get on our knees and pray. And then the last thing we see in this sort of symbolism is the dragon sweeps away a third of the stars and casts them to the earth. I believe what's in view here is a picture of the rebellion, the great rebellion in heaven where Satan led a group of God's angels, these angelic powerful beings to follow him and to turn against God. Jude 6 explains it this way. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What this tells me is that these fallen angels are the cohorts that Satan uses against us as his church. Satan releases these locusts. Remember we spoke about them from the bottomless pit. They rise up and what do they do? Two things. They torment and they blind. They torment people and they blind the world. This world is blinder today than I think it's ever been in a very long time. I didn't live long ago, but I can tell you it's pretty blind today. The second thing that he releases are these horses with lion's teeth and serpent-like tails who come to devour not just the world, but particularly God's people. But we can take courage because we know what Satan's strategy is. We know what he's going to do. God tells us what he's going to do. He tells us how he's going to operate. There's a great book, it's called The Art of War, written by a guy called Sun Tzu. You may have read it, may have not, but he says this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. God gives us a description of the enemy, not so we can be scared. Not so that we can cower in fear and say, wow, he's powerful. No, because we need to know who we are fighting every single day. If we can just get better at spiritual warfare, friends, the church will be a lot stronger. I'm speaking about myself too. 
The fourth point for us this morning is that God wants us to take courage in that Satan will, has, and will always fail. Verse 4, and the dragon, the second half of verse 4, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Picture's pretty plain. Satan's waiting for this child to come, and he's going to devour it the moment that it's born. And so now we have to ask ourselves a question. Who is this child? Well, I believe it's the child of the promise. It's Jesus Christ himself. It's a picture of the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's also a stark reminder that from the beginning of time, there has been a cosmic battle waging. It started with a promise that was given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is speaking to Satan after he has got Adam and Eve to sin. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise. The promise is that one day, Satan, there is going to come a child and that child, Satan, is going to be the very one who destroys you. And it's from that moment in the garden that Satan starts this war, a war that time after time ends with failure after failure after failure. And to prove it to you, I want to take you through a journey through the ages. We all know that Adam and Eve had kids, right? They had many kids, but we know of a few of them in particular. Cain and Abel, right? Now we know Cain was a bit of a weirdo. Abel was, had the right heart. Cain thought his righteousness would get him to God through his offering. Abel believed that it was nothing he could bring to God that would give him righteousness, and he slaughters the lamb. Cain said, let me farm and let me produce stuff for God, because God wants my production. God wants me to produce for him. Maybe you've been living a life of production for God. Maybe you're here this morning and all you're doing every day is running on a treadmill saying, God, let me please you, let me please you, let me show you what I can do. God rejected Cain. And so we know that the promise can't come from Cain, right? Because if God rejected him, where's it going to come from? Abel. But guess what? Abel gets killed. By who? Cain. It's a crazy story. Right at the beginning of the Bible. I mean, if you don't know the Bible and you read this story, you're like, what's going on here? But guess what? Genesis mentions to us that God raises up another son through Adam and Eve, and his name is Seth. And it says that when Seth came to this earth, the people of the earth started to follow God. And all of a sudden, we start to realize perhaps the promised Messiah will come from the seed of Seth. But guess what? Satan's not stupid. And so he realizes that too, and he does everything in his power to destroy Seth's line. Generation after generation after Seth start to turn more and more away from God until you meet this weirdo named Lamech who starts to have more than one wife and you start to think to yourself there we go the enemy's won he's defeated the line of Seth but guess what he didn't because there was one person found righteous his name was Noah and so what does God do God puts Noah on the ark the ark today is Jesus Christ God seals Noah in the ark we are sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ not by your works but by him and so Noah and his family continue the promise. And then after the flood, Satan moves his attention from individuals to nations. And all of a sudden we realize that there's a promised nation. It's going to come through Abraham. He gets promised that he's going to get given a son. But guess what? Abraham's old Sarah's barren. There we go. The enemy's laughing. He's like, God, well, come on, you didn't even know that? In fact, Sarah and Abraham didn't help much because they went and made their own plan and they created Ishmael. Satan's like, that's not the child of the promise right there. But God shows up and he gives them Isaac. And then what happens? Well, Isaac's going to get killed by his dad, right? He's on the altar. God says, kill your child. And so Isaac's there about to stab his, I mean, Jay, uh, he, he, oh my gosh, there's so many people here. Abraham is about to stab Isaac. And guess who shows up? 
The angel of the Lord, not an angel, the angel. Jesus himself steps into history in angelic form and protects his own birth. And Isaac is born. Isaac lives on. Isaac marries Rebecca. And we think, yes, there's going to be another child, but Rebecca can't have kids. But guess what? God doesn't get constrained by our necessity or our lack or our ability to do anything. He produces the child. His name is Jacob. Jacob becomes the father of a nation, Israel, right? His name is actually changed to Israel. But he's the worst guy on the block. If you think of someone that was more undeserving, it was Jacob. He's the wrong man for the job. Why? He's a deceiver. That's what his name means. And so he deceives Esau, his brother, not once but twice. And Esau's dead set to kill him. And Satan's laughing, saying, I got you, Jacob. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been told your entire life that you're the wrong man or woman for the job. Maybe you've been told that you'll amount to nothing. There is not a day that goes by that I don't struggle with that reality. But guess what? God takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. A miracle happens. Jacob and Esau meet much later on in their life in the middle of a desert. And you know, there's no death. There's no murder. There's just an exchange of cattle. Wow, hey, it's so good to see you. Yeah, here's some cows, here's some sheep. But great, let's make a barbecue and let's move on. And so the promise continues. And you think, yes, it's over now. But no, guess what? Israel finds themselves in the clutches of Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh want to do? Under Satan's influence, he wants to destroy Israel, every single one of them. Guess what saves them? The blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. And they are escaped or quickened away to the wilderness. The promise lives on. And you think, well, that's a lot. Maybe hopefully it ends there. It doesn't. Because out of that nation, God chooses one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And from that tribe, one family, the tribe of the family of Jesse. And one man, his name is David. And he says, from the line of David, the promised child from Genesis chapter 3 will be born. Satan says, I'm having none of that. And so he makes him fight Goliath. He doesn't make him, but technically Goliath wanted to kill him. David beats Goliath. And then he says, okay, well, I'll get the king to come against you. And Saul now wants to kill David too. Tormented by an evil spirit, the Bible says. He throws his spear right at David, but he misses him. Time after time, David is freed from, this, from the clutches of the enemy, whether it's through his own sin with Bathsheba, where he could have turned to the enemy and said, I'm done, I'm condemned, I'm ashamed, God doesn't love me. But he turns to God with conviction and says, Lord, forgive me. That's why we should all have a heart like David. And through all the battles, God saves David over and over again. And then you've got to fast forward a bit and we end up with this wicked queen on the throne. Her name is Athaliah. She is the product of two wicked parents, Ahab and Jezebel. You can't get worse than that, bro. It's for real. Ahab and Jezebel, this is their child, Athaliah. She's the queen of Judah. And you know what she says? I'm going to destroy every seed from the tribe of, of, of Judah and every seed of David's. Why? Not from the tribe. Every seed of David's because guess what? I want absolute power. This nonsense about David has to come to an end. And so she kills all the kids. And you think, well, there we go. The enemies won. Full might against Israel through nations and even the kingdom of Israel. And amassed against Judah with King Ahaz is an army from Syria so big you couldn't number them. And all they want to do, along with the kingdom of Israel, is destroy the line of David. Why? Because they wanted to kill the Messiah. But God sends a prophet. His name is Isaiah. And he says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. It's now the 5th century. King Ahasuerus, serious name, is ruling and reigning. And through the influence of a man called Haman, he sends a decree to his entire vast and very big territory and empire. And he says, I want every single Jewish person dead. Kill them all. There's no way this promised child will come. But what Satan didn't realize, neither did King Ahasuerus, was God had raised up someone for such a time as this. And her name was Esther. 
the promise was saved and it continues. The point being, the story that started in the garden ends in a small sleepy town called Bethlehem. There in the manger lies Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. In a small sleepy town. How many of you come from a small sleepy town? How many of you, if they said to you, man, nothing good can come out of wherever it is? I don't know where you came from, but I know this. We used to say this in South Africa. Nothing good can come out of Benoni. That's where Ryan was born. But he's pretty cool. In this manger lies a child, and now we start to see the picture of Revelation chapter 12. Satan waiting to devour this child. What happened at Jesus' birth? King Herod wanted every male child killed. But the wise men were wise for a reason. They warned Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, and they take him to Egypt. The very place that was trying to destroy them in the beginning. God laughs at them and says, I'll save you with Egypt itself. Jesus survives. And her child was caught up to God in heaven. The point being, God's plans, his purposes could not then, will not now, nor ever be frustrated. What Satan saw as the greatest victory of all time, the cross, was his greatest defeat. Because you know who put Jesus on the cross? It wasn't Satan. It wasn't even us. It was God. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God's plan was to save each and one of us on this room by the blood of his Son. It was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 7 where Daniel sees one like the Son of Man riding on the clouds and to him he was presented to the Ancient of Days and given a kingdom, a never-ending kingdom, a kingdom and a dominion, an everlasting dominion. And from that moment onwards, Jesus becomes the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And no... Ryan, you guys can come up. I want to close with this because it would be remiss of me not to warn us. If Satan cannot reach Jesus... Who is he going to try and reach? Who? Us. That's what Revelation 12 verse 6 tells us. And the woman who is the representation of the body of Christ fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God which is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan has the church in his crosses because he cannot touch the Christ. He's coming for us, friends. But he's always going to be a loser such a powerful picture of the Exodus story which you actually see mentioned over again in Revelations the second half of it when the nation of Israel was about to be killed by Pharaoh God provides a Passover lamb right that Passover lamb goes on the doorposts of their lintels God redeems them and where does he send me as the church are going to be sent to the wilderness but even in the wilderness which is a horrible hostile and barren place we can take courage because just like God protected the nation of Israel provided for them in abundance guarded them on every side provided them with manna and quail a fire by night and a cloud by the day God will protect us he will lead us and he will guide us through this wilderness experience of ours the time is 1260 days and if you've been paying attention that time is the same time that we heard about the two witnesses three and a half years 42 months the same times times and half a time mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 we are living in the church age friends we are in our wilderness moment right now but our witness is powerful today and so what is there left for us to do well if we know God's on our side and we know Satan can't win there is only one thing left for us to do and that is to become the witnesses that Jesus died for on the cross it's for us to go into this world to know Christ and to fail 
He's failed with every single one of you. Do you think Satan wanted you here today? Do you think he wanted you hearing the word of God? No, God protected you in the wilderness, brought you to this place where you could become his son and his daughter. We need to start living in the victory that Christ died for. We are not defeated. We'll never be defeated. We need to take our identity in Christ seriously and walk out with conviction, power and boldness and preach to a lost and dying world that they can have what we have. It's not ours exclusively. It is for everyone, everywhere. And we are God's mouthpiece. So what will you do? Will you be his mouthpiece? I trust that we all will. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for the ongoing encouragement that you give us through your word. And that yes, even though we are all in our wilderness moment, Lord, and sometimes the wilderness is hard. Sometimes the wilderness is pretty terrible, in fact, because there's wolves and stuff. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remind us that you have been protecting us, nourishing us, and guarding us our entire lives. That we are living today in this moment because you have set us apart, Lord. I pray over every single person here today that you would empower them with your spirit, that you would give them boldness like they've never had, that you would give them a courage that they've never experienced before. And that in all our prayer lives, we would start to focus our energy on defeating the spiritual forces that are against us, Lord. And that we would love our neighbors as a result. Whether they come to church or don't come to the church. Whether they agree with us or don't agree with us. We would love them with the same love that you love us. And I pray this today in Jesus' name.